First Peter chapter 3, if you would all stand for the reading of God's word. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, which can be found on page 1016 of the Black Pew Bibles. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. If you are four years old to second grade, you are released to the herd with the Abners. Four years old to the second grade, you are released to the herd. I'm going to pray with the pastor before he preaches and teaches us this morning. So if you would, again, just uh, join me um, with bowed heads and open hearts um, as we come to the Father and say, Lord, we just thank you for, again, your work, your work um, that you accomplished on the cross. Lord, the, the work that you have accomplished in Pastor Jonathan, that you would just uh, give him clarity, that you would give him discernment this morning as he speaks what you have prepared in his heart. Lord, just give him boldness and courage to proclaim the truth of your word. And Lord, for us, as we sit and receive this, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would open our hearts to receive this word this morning, this teaching this morning, in a way that would drive us to a deeper relationship with you and a desire and an action to be and look more like you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Good. Go ahead and grab your copy of Scripture um, there and just keep it open to 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, if you do not have your own copy of Scripture, somewhere around you, either in front of you or on the chair um, beside you, you will find a, a hard uh, back uh, black cover Bible. And if you turn to page 1016, you will find the Scripture that we're going to look at today. Um, we're looking at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 17. As we stated, when we got back into the book of 1 Peter, Peter's going to camp on the suffering, camp on the topic of suffering for, for quite a while. So last week we saw it, this week we're going to see it for the next two or three weeks. Peter is unpacking what does it look like for believers to be those who suffer, yes, for righteousness' sake, but suffer because you are living a life that imitates Jesus Christ. Um, if you've ever read just anything about um, theology, if you've ever read anything about the doctrine of Scripture, there's, there's an interesting little word that you'll come across, um, and it's this word right here. It's a $5 word. It's fancy, um, but it's really simple in its meaning. It's, it's this word perspicuity, and it usually goes like this. The phrase is the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, oddly enough, the word perspicuity means clarity. And so they're talking about the clarity of Scripture. So the first time I heard that in seminary, I'm like, the perspicuity of Scripture, what on earth? That is very unclear. Then actually to find out the meaning of perspicuity means clarity. I'm like, why on earth can you just call this the idea of Scripture like the clarity of Scripture? But as it goes in theology, often you've got to, you, know, you have to make things harder or sound fancier than they, than they really are. 
Um, but when you have this category of the doctrine of Scripture, what, what does it mean to understand the Bible? There is a category that talks about the clarity of Scripture. I mean, simply what it means is this, is that you don't need to have a seminary degree to be able to come and understand the Bible. You don't need to be a professor. Um, you don't need to have an undergrad. Um, from the littlest child to the most senior of adults, what you need to know for life and godliness, what you need to know to understand your sin, what you need to know to understand the gospel and how you can find salvation in Jesus Christ is just incredibly, incredibly clear. But under that category of the clarity of Scripture, just because something is clear in Scripture sometimes doesn't mean that it's just easy to understand. Sometimes Scripture's hard to understand. And when you read these verses that we just read today, verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3 in the first letter that Peter wrote, you come across something that on the surface is just, just as hard to understand. Peter, in his second letter, wrote this little nugget about the apostle Paul. He says, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters. Hey, you know what? There's some things that are in Paul's letters that are just hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So it's a great little piece of writing from Peter because what Peter's saying is Paul's doing the same thing that I'm doing. He's writing scripture. Um, but man, there's some stuff Paul, Paul's writing. That brother's writing some hard stuff. It's hard to understand. And it's like, man, Peter, I don't know that you're too far behind your brother right there, you know, especially when it comes to this section of Scripture, verses 18 through, through 22. Martin Luther, in his commentary, um, talking about this piece of Scripture right here, says this about 1 Peter three eighteen through 22. He says, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. So it's like, man, all right, man. It's like, we're in good company now, man. If, you know, if Martin Luther is talking about this piece of Scripture, he's like, man, I don't understand. It's like, okay, well, you know what? So it's easy to say, man, this, this, this text can have potential for grand confusion. It's hard. Sometimes Scripture is hard. That fits with Scripture being clear. But just because Scripture is clear and sometimes there are pieces of Scripture that are hard to understand does not mean that Scripture is impossible to understand. Sometimes it takes a little brow work, a little thinking to dig into the text, to dig into the Scripture, to see what what exactly is the argument being made when we stumble across a a hard text. And I think there's two principles that we can mine that are going to be very helpful for us today when you understand this, that Scripture is clear, Scripture is sometimes hard, but Scripture is not impossible to understand. Because we're going to bump across something in what's going to be just notably hard to understand in the end of verse 18 and the verse 19. When you see Peter saying something like this, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's, just, that's sort of a hard text to understand. And many of a community group has been derailed by people coming with all kinds of different interpretations, some which we'll look at here in a minute of what exactly is Peter getting at. And people spin off into all these obscure little things. Well, I, I think we need to interpret the text this way, and I think we need to interpret the text this way. And then people start nitpicking about things, and really in the grand scheme of things, that's not really even the major point of what, what Peter's talking about. So we have to understand when you, when you read Scripture, the plain things of Scripture, these are the main things of Scripture. That comes from a, a great pastor I, that I love, and he pastors me greatly through his preaching ministry called Alistair Begg, and he says this all the time, the plain things are the main things, the main things are the plain things. So when you bump into a hard text, what you're not to do is get bogged down into the mire of details, into all these nuanced interpretations, but what you can do is step back and go, okay, this piece of Scripture, it lands in context somehow, so what exactly is Peter trying to say? 
And the other thing that is helpful for us to understand when we come to Scripture, and it is going to be really helpful when you come down to to verse 21, because you're going to see Peter say this, baptism now saves you. And so it's like, is that true? Because earlier, if you go back into chapter 123, you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, Peter's saying the exact opposite thing. He's saying it is God alone who saves you. So you have to have a category for Scripture interpreting Scripture. So either you live with this thing going, okay, well, yeah, baptism must save you, but then you read other pieces of Scripture and go, well, I don't see that baptism is what saves you here. So either Peter was writing with known contradictions or somehow we say, well, the Holy Spirit really didn't know what he was doing and he wrote, led Peter into some sort of just chaotic, confusing writing and we don't know what's going on. Or what we do is we step back and go, no, the whole totality of Scripture is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation comes to us. We are born again when God, by His great mercy, comes and saves us. And so with that in mind, we come going, because we know this truth of Scripture, we look to go, how do we understand this more confusing aspect of Scripture in light of the very clear aspects of Scripture? So those are just some some categories to help build for you guys as, as we just mature as Christians. Plain things are main things. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is clear, sometimes hard, but never impossible to understand. So with this in mind, what I want to do is just tip my hat to three different ways that people, that people acknowledge that they try to interpret what is notably a hard text. I'm going to just let you know where I land. I'm just more convinced with this argument. But then I want us to see something I think that Peter wants all of us to see. And it's not necessarily the nuance of just, just a, a, very, a very niche, a very nuanced interpretation of what people sometimes present as an argument for these, for these verses. So when people come and they read the end of verse 18, look in your copy of Scripture, they read these words, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, this illustration of Noah, now saves you. There's sort of three classical ways that people try to, to unpack this. And the reason why I want to touch on this is just to help you understand that even though people interpret how to understand this text differently, that it doesn't debunk that you can still read Scripture like this and it can still edify your soul. So first, some people come and they will say this, that this text refers to Christ's preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. So according to this view... Christ was not personally present, but he spoke by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah. And so what they argue is this, that when, when Peter writes that being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit, in the Spirit Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison in those, those days of Noah, those spirits that formerly did not obey. What they're saying is this, that when Noah was preaching righteousness back in the day during the, the time leading up to the flood, what it was is that it was Christ by the Spirit, through Noah. So it was Noah's talking, Noah speaking, but it was really like empowered by Christ. And so that when Noah was doing what Noah was doing, it was actually basically like Christ was doing this sort of preaching to these spirits in prison. Another interpretation that some will put forward is this. Some have understood Peter as referring to Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection, or they refer to the sinful human beings who perished during Noah's flood. 
So they see that last part of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And what they do is go, there's that intermediary period between Jesus being put to death in the flesh, that three-day period he was in the grave before he was made alive in the spirit, and that in this period that he descended to hell, and then people split and say he descended to hell, and some were preaching to the Old Testament saints of Noah's day, and, he's, and then other people say, no, what he was doing, he was preaching to sinful humanity. What he was doing is preaching the gospel to them in this intermediary period. And so somehow his flesh, yes, was on the cross, it was, it was buried in the grave, but by the Spirit descended into hell and was able to preach um, to these spirits. A third way that people will propose to interpret this text goes like this. Others propose that the text describes Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels found in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. These evil angels, according to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, had sexual relations with women and were in prison because of their sin. So when Christ went into heaven and was exalted, his exaltation, his victory of exaltation, his victory of resurrection was actually a proclamation to all of these people who are receiving the judgment because they've not received salvation from God. So his exaltation was a proclamation of his victory over the evil powers of Satan's kingdom. So, man, you hear that and you're like, good night. You're like, what? Like, is that really what's going on there? And right, and so people will read this stuff. If you have a study Bible worth its salt, it's most likely going to try to unpack some of these things, right? And we come to this harder text and we go, oh, man, like, like what is it? Like, what do we do? Like, that's, that's insane. That's beyond me. How, how, what does that mean for me when I go to work tomorrow on Monday? And I think it means this. I think what we have to do is we have to understand that, yes, that Scripture is hard. And to, just so you know, I, I, I land with that third interpretation. But despite where we land with one of these three interpretations, we have to remember that Peter was writing verses 18 through 22 for a reason. And it was not to confuse people reading his letter. He was writing verses 18 through 22 with this reason in mind. I want to encourage the believers of Asia Minor who are suffering because they are Christians. And so we can rest assured that somehow, in some way, that verses 18 through 20 flow in this vein of thought where Peter says, when you look at Christ's crucifixion, when you look at the victory that he has through his resurrection and his exaltation, when you look at the illustration of what went on in Noah's day and how that corresponds to baptism in our day, that the people who read this letter will be encouraged to walk in suffering, just like Christ walked in suffering. So these verses land in a context. Peter's just finished saying some very audacious things. 13 through 17, Peter said this, Do not fear if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. It is better to suffer for good than to suffer for evil, if it be God's will. Ultimate blessing is found in this way. And we go, how in the world can Peter talk like that? How can he come across two people who are suffering, physical, emotional, verbal suffering, because merely because they're Christians and say, it is better for you to suffer this way because ultimate blessing is found like this. And Peter, without skipping a beat, rolls right into verse 18, rolls right into the first verse that we're going to study today, and he points right to the crucifixion of Christ. This section of Scripture 
18 through 22 is one grand encouragement, and it becomes just another way that, believe, that, Paul, that Peter's going to encourage the believers, showing them how to respond to suffering. Peter's going to encourage these believers to look to Christ. He's going to look at them and tell them, take heart. Jesus traveled the pathway of suffering, but it led to his victory and exaltation. And for this reason, because of Jesus Christ, you and I can have hope of eternal victory over suffering and evil because we are in Jesus Christ. So in light of this, no matter where you land or some of those interpretations, I think you can see these three things that are meant to encourage our souls as we walk as believers here in this world. You're going to look at first at verse 18, and you're going to see Peter talk about Jesus Christ and His crucifixion. And then for Peter, that's going to lead to this idea of victory. And you're going to see that in verses 18, 19, and 22. Because Christ was crucified, look at His victory. Yes, He suffered, but look at His exaltation. And it's meant to encourage our souls. And then as a, as a final nail in the coffin, the way that he brings this teaching, this little idea that he wants these believers to understand to a close, what he's going to do is he's going to illustrate the victory of Jesus Christ over the evil angelic powers and authorities that do the bidding of Satan's kingdom. He's going to illustrate this by looking to Noah and how that corresponds to baptism in our day. So first, let's look at verse 18. Look in your copy of Scripture there. Look at that first part of verse 18. Peter writes this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So with verse 18, Peter Peter makes a direct connection between the suffering of Christ and the suffering of the believers in Asia Minor. They needed to be reminded that Jesus was the ultimate doer of good. Yet he suffered for righteousness' sake, something that they're also experiencing, suffering for doing good. Because they are in Jesus Christ, because they're rooted in the gospel, their life, their words, their thoughts, their actions are imitating Jesus Christ. And as they imitate Jesus Christ, people are pouring out suffering on them merely because they are imitators of Jesus Christ. And so this leads Peter to talk right about the crucifixion of Christ. Christ suffered by suffering to the point of death on the cross, and he makes two statements. He says, Christ's suffering was undeserved. Christ also suffered. Christ was the ultimate doer of good. He did nothing to deserve suffering. When you go back to verse 17, it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter says, there's two ways to suffer in this life. One's for being a knucklehead, doing something very dumb deserving what comes to you because you're doing evil, sinful things. That's one way to suffer. And Peter's like, if you're in that category, he's like, I've got nothing for you. But if you're actually living a life of Jesus Christ and you're receiving suffering for that, he says, that's actually a more blessed path. But when you look at Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ falls into that category of truly being righteous and suffering for righteousness' sake. Ultimately, his suffering was undeserved. But not only that, his suffering was unique. Look, For Christ also suffered once. His suffering was a one-time sacrifice. His suffering was unique in this, that it was for sins. Peter's making some parallels between the suffering of believers and the suffering of Christ, but this is where it ends. You and I cannot suffer on behalf of each other in some way, in some hope, in some attempt of bringing people to God. We cannot suffer for sins, but Jesus Christ in His suffering through crucifixion could 
Jesus suffered once for sins. It was also unique in this way. It was the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, the epitome of perfection, suffered for you and I, you and I who are notably unrighteous because of the sin that rules and reigns in our heart. Jesus Christ suffered. His suffering was undeserved. Jesus Christ suffered, and His suffering was unique. But notice that His suffering actually accomplishes something. Jesus' suffering actually brings sinners to God. See, Jesus' death was unique in that it actually accomplishes salvation for sinners. When you look at verse 18, the sentence in its stripped-down form looks like this, For Christ also suffered so that He might bring us, you and I, sinners to God. Jesus' death on the cross does something. It reconciles sinners to God. It makes people who are apart from God right with God. The good news of the cross, the gospel of the cross is this. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross brings people who are far from God, near to God, into an intimate relationship with the Father. So the question is, is there someone here that needs to be reconciled with the Father? Are you far from God? Has sin separated you from God the Father? Scripture shouts back, yes, it has. And the good news of the cross, according to Peter, is this, that Jesus Christ suffered and His suffering was sufficient to reconcile sinners to God. Do you need to be brought to God? Then respond by faith in Christ, trusting that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient to make you right with the Father. Rest not on your own works. Try not to to travel the path of religion. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Look in Christ. His sacrifice was sufficient. But see, we also learn something else from this, Christ being crucified. We look to this and we see this encouragement. The, The encouragement engine is starting to rev up here, okay? So Peter isn't just like, doctrinal fact, Jesus saves. And everyone's like, man, this is great. We know some stuff. No, he's saying, no, good news. Jesus Christ saves. And this is meant to be encouragement because notice, Christ is our encouragement in the midst of our suffering because by calling Christ's crucifixion suffering, Peter is making a point of contact with his people. Christ suffered undeservedly. Well, for righteousness' sake, you're suffering undeservedly. Christ suffered for righteousness' sake. Well, so aren't you. So take heart and look to Christ. Your your suffering is not the end of the story. Suffering will not undo you. Suffering will not sever you from relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son. Your suffering is not your identity. Look at what happened as a result of Christ's suffering. Christ traveled the pathway of suffering, and the pathway of suffering was the means to his exaltation. It was the means to his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And that's exactly where Peter goes. Look at the end of verse 18. Christ suffered that he might bring us to God, and then he turns right immediately to the resurrection. This Jesus Christ, this one who I'm talking about, he was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Verse 22, Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers. 
having been subjected to Him. See, believers are to have no fear in the face of their suffering. And since they are in Christ, they share in His glory, they share in His victory. And rooted in the work of Christ on the cross, rooted in the crucifixion of Jesus, Peter turns to the theme of victory. And what he does is he shows two things. (coughs) Pardon me. He shows this, that Christ has victory through His resurrection, and Christ has victory through His exaltation. And remember what Peter's doing here. He's exhorting the people. He's encouraging them. Listen, Jesus isn't some just nobody far off who doesn't know your experiences. You're suffering for righteousness' sake. Jesus, the righteous one, suffered for being Jesus. So we can look to Him. He's our example of how we, how we think and how we act. And more than that, we can be encouraged by His pathway of suffering because His pathway of suffering didn't lead to defeat, but His pathway through suffering led to His exaltation, to His victory, to His glory. Christ has victory through His resurrection. Yes, He was put to death in the flesh, but oh, He was made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had a real body that was really put to death. But it was the same body that was made alive by the Holy Spirit. See, sin's curse of eternal death has no reign over Jesus and His resurrection from the dead proves this to be true. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this, Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's saying the exact same thing. Christ would really had flesh. He had a body, earth, skin, bones, hair, face, teeth, ears, kneecaps. He had a real body. His real body was really put to death. But that real body didn't go into the grave and decompose and die and turn into a pile of bones. Empowered by the Holy Spirit Himself, He resurrected from the dead. And according to Peter, over and over and over again, in the book of Romans, in the book of Acts, according to Paul, over and over again, in the book of Romans, in the book of Acts, the thing that is the once-for-all proof that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is when the Spirit empowered Christ to resurrect from the dead. This is the nail in the coffin. This is the one thing that says Jesus is no ordinary guy. He came back to life. He was made alive in the Spirit, and this flies under the banner of victory. See, not only does Christ have victory through His resurrection, but Christ has victory through His exaltation. When you look at verse 19 in verse 22, like those are some of the verses like, ah, oh, man, how do you interpret that? No matter how you interpret that or no matter where you land, there is one theme, one banner, one flag that flies over verse 19 and 22, and it's this victory. Jesus, through his resurrection, has victory. And through his exaltation to rise, to be ascended into heaven, and to sit down at the right hand of God the Father, putting angels and authorities and powers and spirits in prison subject to him. What Peter is saying this is that his exaltation is a clarion shout, it's the trumpet blast. Jesus has victory over Satan and his kingdom. Empowered by the Holy Spirit and resurrected from the grave, Jesus went into heaven and took his rightful place of exaltation at the right hand of God. 
Christ's death, resurrection, and exaltation is a proclamation to the evil angelic authorities and powers that they are subject to him, and he is the one with ruling sovereign authority over everything. See, Jesus is not like other gods. Jesus is alive, and that shaves off every other religion in this whole face of this earth. Jesus stands supreme as king of kings over all authorities and over all powers. And what this means for you and I is this, really stinking good news. This is good news. Christ's victory through resurrection, Christ's victory through exaltation is good news. For the victory of Christ through His resurrection and exaltation, is the defeat of Satan's kingdom. See, Christ's victory is the believer's victory. I mean, Christ's victory through resurrection, Christ's victory through exaltation, we're talking about straight-up, uncontested, end-zone, touchdown dance, fingers-in-the-air victory. Right? Satan's kingdom cannot trump, Satan's kingdom will never trump the victory that Christ accomplished on the cross through his resurrection, through his ascension, his exaltation. Jesus' exaltation is a proclamation of victory. His resurrection is a declaration of supremacy. Jesus defeated the enemy of death and all things are now in subjection to him. Paul writes, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. See, the tool of Satan's kingdom was death and eternal separation from God. Like when you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything was really awesome. Until you get to Genesis chapter 3, when you read about the account of the fall, and the way the world is tore up by sin and the way the sin dwells in us came down to one decision made by Adam and Eve. They chose to believe Satan's lie over God's truth, and it skewed their relationship with God the Father. It separated them from God the Father. And then everybody born from Adam and Eve all the way down to you and I sitting here in this room have been born into sin. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Sin gives birth to sin. The wages of sin is death. Satan's kingdom is marked by death and eternal separation from God. And the only way to overthrow Satan's kingdom was for somebody who could come along and die in our place, die with sin being put upon them, go into the grave and not stay dead. Death was only going to be defeated by death. And Jesus Christ went in and defeated death by dying the death you and I should have deserved, but then resurrecting from the grave and being exalted to the right hand of the Father. And so what this is, is a clear, it's a trumpet shout to Satan's kingdom, you're nothing. Satan's kingdom has been debunked. It's like a giant hot air balloon. It looks impressive, but when you poke it, it just sort of withers. It's full of hot air. It's full of nothingness. And Satan's kingdom is that now because Christ has defeated Satan. Christ has defeated sin. Christ has defeated death through his death and his resurrection. This is the reason why Satan tried like hell to convince Jesus to do anything but go to the cross. When you go read the gospel accounts of Matthew, the point of the temptation of Jesus by Satan is to try to get Jesus everything that was rightfully his and going to come to him, if only he would bow down and worship Satan and just, Lord willing, not travel the path of the cross. 
Right? That's the high point of the temptation of Jesus. Matthew says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will just fall down and worship me. Satan was saying, I will give you glory. I will give you victory. I will give you supremacy. I will give you exaltation. Everything that is rightfully yours will be yours if you will only bow down and worship me now. And what was Jesus' response? No, He knows those things are His, but they will be His through the pathway of suffering of the cross, not by avoiding the cross and doing what Satan was wanting Him to do because Satan knew something that you and I now know when we read Matthew's Gospel. The moment that Jesus would be pinned to that tree, the moment that He would die with all of the sins of the world poured out upon Him, the moment that He broke up out of the grave, it was the death knell for Satan's kingdom. The same thing happens in Matthew chapter 16, and I don't think it's a, it's a mistake that the same guy who experienced what I'm about to read to you in Matthew chapter 16 is the same guy writing this letter. In Matthew chapter 16, you have this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Peter's just given the grand confession, who do you say that I am? Well, you're, you're, you're the Messiah, the Son of, of the living God. And then right on the hills of that, there's this odd interaction. You're just like, man, you know, Peter, you were there, bro. Then he comes around the corner and he says this, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter, having none of that, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus to his face, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Satan's kingdom knows that ultimate victory and his ultimate undoing will be undone when Jesus travels the path of suffering through the cross and experiences victory in his resurrection and his exaltation. See, Peter looked to Jesus and said, you are the Christ, you shall not suffer and be killed. Jesus says, because I am the Christ, I must suffer and be killed because that is where victory over Satan, sin, and death, that is where eternal life will be found in me defeating and undoing the very kingdom of darkness. See, it was God's will that suffering be the means of Christ's victory. The defeat of Satan, the defeat of sin, the defeat of death would come only through the suffering of Christ. See, I really believe Peter's making a connection for his readers. Yes, Christ suffered, but oh, oh, look at the victory. Look at what Christ was accomplished. Look at what what was bestowed upon him because because of his suffering. Exaltation, resurrection, glorification, being placed at the right hand of the Father, taking his seat, ruling and reigning rightfully as the King of kings. See, believers can truly have no fear in the face of suffering. Christ's ultimate victory is meant to remind believers that the troubles of this present age are temporary. Our victory is sure because Christ has triumphed over every evil power, and by faith, we are in Christ. See, this is why you can get up tomorrow morning and go to work and face the scorn of that unbeliever who just keeps just dumping on you just because you're a believer. This is why you can go and share the gospel with a, a mother or a father who are unbelievers and just ridicule you because you've been born again. 
This is why you can go to that neighbor for the 10th time, the 15th time, the 20th time, and share the gospel with them knowing they're going to pour out a mountain of scorn, a mountain of mocking, a mountain of jeering, a mountain of making fun of you. Why? Because ultimately, that is not going to undo you. You're in Christ. You've been associated with Christ. Christ's victory is your victory because you are in Christ. Christ's ultimate victory is meant to remind believers that the troubles of this present age are temporary. So with that said, Peter goes, let's really crank up the confusion. And he starts talking about Noah randomly and talking about how baptism saves you. It's like, all right, how does this tie into anything with suffering? I asked myself that question a lot this week, and I think, I think I have the answer here. So what Peter does not do is go, you know what? I just think I'll just randomly drift off into like a squirrel chase, you know, like, here, here, oh, shiny, ah, then all of a sudden he's talking about Noah and baptism, right? What he's doing is he's seeking to illustrate something for us, Okay. Now, it's not a hard jump because these spirits in prison, if you go read the Noah account, which is Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, the very beginning of that Noah account, Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, I really believe that's what he's talking about here. So it's almost like this. Peter's talking about suffering, and he's got his Old Testament open in front of him. And he's sitting there on Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. He's looking at the flood account of Noah. And he's looking and goes, oh, man, the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6 talk about these, these evil angelic powers that did not do what God told them to do. They trespassed the boundaries of God, and they are now going to receive just condemnation. They are living out the actions and the mindset of Satan's kingdom, and so they're going to be judged. Oh, by the way, this reminds me of, of the way Noah was saved when, when he was in the ark, when the judgment waters came upon the earth, and then that reminds me of Baptist. So, so it's not a hard jump. It's not like a squirrel squirrel chase. He's not just bouncing all over the place. There's, there's a train of thought here going on for Noah, or going on for Peter. So with these things laid out, Peter turns to illustrate what he has said by looking to the account of Noah, and then he's going to draw a connection to baptism. For Peter, one of the clearest ways to illustrate the victory of Jesus was to look to the flood account of Noah and the greater reality of baptism that it pointed to. So in its simplest form, Peter breaks down the events of Noah's day into the categories of those who receive judgment and those who receive salvation. Right? So when you look at chapter or verse 20... There were some who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. But there were a few, that is eight persons, who were brought safely through water. So so in its simplest form, what Peter's saying is this. If you just go read Genesis 6, 6, 7, 8, and 9, what you see is there's these people who receive judgment and there's these people who receive salvation. The flood was both judgment and salvation. See, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and knowing God's plan to destroy the wicked, he would have called all who would hear him to flee from judgment and flee to salvation. And for those who did not obey God, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, the floodwaters came as a form of judgment. But for those who listened to Noah, which turned out to be eight people, which is Noah, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws, when these people listened to Noah, the floodwaters came, but for them, the floodwaters weren't a form of judgment. It was actually a form of salvation. See, Noah's salvation was brought about by the same act of judgment that destroyed the wicked. So you, you can imagine this. Noah's sitting there, 
And all these years that he's building the ark and building the ark and building the ark, and you go read 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So what we're supposed to imagine is this, as, as Noah is nailing and as Noah is sawing and cutting and building, he's simultaneously doing this. Listen, God is bringing judgment. God is going to judge us for sin. And the way that you can be saved from the coming judgment, I'm building it. It's right here in front of you. The ark is God's form of salvation. Don't flee to judgment. Don't be satisfied with this. Don't don't not listen to what I'm saying, but listen to what I'm saying. Believe me, trust me, God is going to bring judgment. The ark, salvation, here it is. Believe when it's time to get in this thing, come and get in this thing. That what did the people do? They mocked and they jeered him. Nobody believed Eight people believed Noah himself, and the seven people were part of his family. Everyone else mocked and jeered. So what happened? Animals came. Noah and the family are in. God sealed it up. Floodwaters came. And then simultaneously in that one act of the floodwaters coming, it turned into two things. One, it was a form of judgment for those who mocked Noah and his preaching, but then it turned into a form of salvation for Noah because it was those floodwaters that came and actually saved them from the evil and the wickedness around them when God wiped out sinful humanity. See, for Peter, Noah and the flood was a type that pointed forward to a better reality. The flood was a shadow that would be realized by something greater. So when Peter, with his Old Testament open, reading Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, for him, he could read that and go, you know what? The same thing that Noah experienced, this idea of judgment through water and salvation through water, that's an awful lot like baptism. And it switches them right into the mode of thinking about baptism. Yes, it's true that Noah, these eight persons were brought safely through water, but man, that sounds an awful lot like baptism. Baptism corresponds to this. There's a, there's a unique little word in the original there that we translate corresponds to this, but it's the word antitype. That there was the shadow of, of what I'm talking about seen in Noah, but the more fully realized substance is realized in baptism, he says. The water that flooded the world in Noah's day and through which Noah was saved functions as a model for Christian believers, just as the chaotic waters of the flood were the agent of destruction, so too the waters of baptism are waters of destruction." See, the waters of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. But believers are and can be rescued from these waters in that they are baptized with Christ, who has also emerged from the waters of death through His resurrection. See, just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. I think it is in this way that Peter's talking about baptism now saves you. Because when you read baptism now saves you, you actually have to jump down to the end of verse 21 because the rest of the sentence in the original reads like this, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, it would be hairy indeed if Peter was just like, baptism saves you. 
And he gave no qualifying statement and be like, ooh, man, how do you reconcile that with some of the other stuff in the Bible? But then he comes along and he doesn't leave it there. He says this, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, he qualifies it. What he's saying is this, I'm not talking about baptisms in some, some external action, some water just rubbing against your body and washing dirt from the body, like somehow that just saves you and makes you right with God. He says that right here in verse 21. He's like, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about baptism saving you as just a mere external ritual that you just do and all of a sudden you're just magically right with God. What he's saying is this, I'm not talking about a removal of dirt from the body, but I'm talking about an appeal to God for a good conscience. See, humanity is born into sin and all are in need of a good conscience. For someone to stand and make an appeal to God is to recognize that only God can make your sinful heart clean. And this cleansing of conscience comes through crucifixion and resurrection. See, baptism represents this. In baptism, we die under the judgment waters of death, yet the very waters that are meant to be our death become the waters of life. It's, it's this. When we stand as sinners, this, you heard this testimony this morning, and you heard it in a different ways between, these, between Tommy and between what Sarah said. It was this. I recognized something about my inside, about my heart. It wasn't clear. I didn't have a good conscience. It wasn't good. It wasn't pure. And I needed, I needed somebody to do something about that. And it was the outright recognition that they could not do anything about it. They stood there and they made an appeal to God. God, I need you to do something inside here because I do not have a good conscience, a pure soul. I need you, God, to save me. I need you, God, to make me clean. I need you, God, to make me right. And Peter says this, good news because God has done this. Look at Christ's crucifixion. Look at his resurrection. Look at his exaltation. Look at how he has defeated Satan's sin and death. He has made a way for you to to have a good conscience to be made pure. And when you stand inside the baptismal waters, based upon that confession, what Peter is saying is this. When you stand inside those waters, what you're saying is, man, I needed a good conscience. I needed to be purified on the inside. I sought God, and the way that he provided through crucifixion, I see that Jesus through his crucifixion was sufficient to actually make me right with God. So I'm now going to outwardly image, outwardly make a sign to you of what this good conscience transaction was like on the inside. You couldn't see it, but when I was up there in the baptism, it looked like this. When I had Tommy and I put him under, I mean, he was under. It was like he was going under the waters of death. Now, granted, it's like three foot of water, so I would have just dropped him. He could have stand up, but it's supposed to, we're supposed to, we're making a symbol here. He was under. He was dead. If I were just to hold him under, he would die. But when we bring him up and that water just flowing off and you just come, what is this like? Yes, he was down under the waters of death and the waters of death and judgment were going to undo him. But we brought him up. He was resurrected to newness of life. And what this is meant to do is say, I know someone else who did the exact same thing. But he did it when the waters of death were over him and the judgment of death was over him. And it was over him for three days because he was really dead. Like, Mega dead, super dead, really dead, dead. 
And then he wasn't entrapped by the waters of death, but he came bursting out of death to newness of life, and it was a screaming shout, I have defeated Satan, sin, and death. And I think it is in this way that Peter's going, man, so when we baptize people, in this sense, it saves you because it is a clarion shout that I am declaring the victory of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for me I'm declaring to the world and to anyone who will see and listen my testimony that I have been made right with God the Father through Christ the Son. Just as Christ was submerged under the judgment of death, He too was raised to life. Death, which should have been His end, became the very thing that led to His victory through resurrection. And here again, in the picture of baptism, we see Peter anchor a believer's encouragement, anchor a believer's hope to the, victor, to the victory we have in Christ. Baptism is a picture that declares to the world, Jesus has saved me. I am in Christ. I am a partaker in his victory over Satan, sin, and death. Christ's suffering was the pathway of his victory and exaltation. And in this, you and I, believers, those who have truly been born again, can rest our hope because we're in Christ, we're partakers of His victory. So this means as we stare down the barrel of suffering, whether it's emotional, verbal, Lord willing, hopefully not soon, but most likely physical, coming our way, it's happening in the rest of the world, it's not happening here in the U.S., but I'm, I'm sure it's coming down the, down the barrel. How do you stand up in the midst of that? You stand up in the midst of that and go, man, this isn't my undoing. I'm in Christ. They may kill me. They may separate me from my family. They may put me in prison. They may mock me. They may demote me. They may fire me. But nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I'm in Christ. This thing's temporary. It's not going to undo me. And I think from this obscure, hard, confusing passage, that's exactly what Peter wants us to see. Christ's victory is our victory, a victory wrought by the crucifixion, and in that we have great hope. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray you would do your work now and make it clear where I may have misspoke or I may have just been confusing in my own right. God, I pray that you would take it and you would just grab one thing and you would apply it to the hearts of, of my hearers today, that you would apply it to my heart. The message of Christ's crucifixion brings victory. It stirs my heart. Because what that means is I can truly have no fear of those who bring suffering my way because their suffering won't undo me. It's temporary. It's, it's, it's nothing in the grand scheme of eternity. God, for those of us who are experiencing some form of suffering right now, for our testimony about Jesus Christ, God, I pray that you would pour out uh, a measure of blessing on them that you would give them great courage through the words that they've heard today, that you would help them to extend mercy, to extend the very blessing of God himself, pray for these people who are causing suffering and harm to come to them. God, I pray for those of us who are avoiding suffering, Avoiding mocking, avoiding jeering, avoiding some sort of verbal or emotional suffering for the sake of Christ. 
because we, we recognize the hardness of it, and so we just don't open our mouth and we just don't testify to Jesus Christ at all. God, help us and help, help me to see that that is not actually the path of blessing, that it is more blessed to image Jesus in this way, even if that means suffering, because Christ walked that path and Christ is our example in this way. God, if it is your will that some of us should suffer for being witnesses for Jesus Christ, may we embrace that and may we press in and lean fully on Jesus in this moment, in this minute, in this way as we seek to live this out. God, you're good. We ask that you do this and lead your people in this way. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.